This is Van Color. Welcome back to This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir. And our featured guest today is here to talk BC politics. He was the chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation, an influential community and business leader. He is being awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal and the Order of British Columbia. He is the current BC Liberal MLA for Skeena, and he is running for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party in an effort to be the next Premier of British Columbia. He is... Ellis Ross Ellis. A pleasure to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Not a problem, and congratulations on your first episode. We're making history here, right? <laughs> I'm very proud because you're on the show. This is great. I have to be honest with you, though. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed. Oh, really? In, in what way? Well, here's the thing. BC Liberal leadership debate, the first one. Right. You wore this exquisite tie. It was a beautiful photo collage of your family yep. and it popped it popped on camera and you know it was meaningful first episode of this is van color on check you're not even wearing I, a tie I know, thought I we know, were bros i know, I know. <laughs> but casual right i thought it was gonna be casual one-on-one right you're not even wearing a button shirt i'm not but that's right? my style. You're lucky where I'm, I'm wearing a shirt at all, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> this used to be an audio version where we didn't have cameras. Yeah. <laughs> I have to be honest, you know, I thought you won that debate, not just because of your exquisite tie, but that, you know, that helped. You're in this party leadership race for the BC Liberals. The theme of the race is basically change and renewal. You've branded yourself as the change candidate in that race. And so I have to ask you, you're, you're going around, you're going to different communities, you say that you're listening. How out of touch are the BC Liberals coming out of the 2020 provincial election? That's a great question, because you know the answer to that is coming out of uh, uh, people that are in Surrey and in Richmond, Maple Ridge, mm -hmm. Cranbrook. They're the ones that are telling me that the, the BC Liberals lost, lost touch with what made them successful in the first place meaning going out and talking to grassroots people in church basements and restaurants. And this is all you've really got to do to actually get that back. You've got to go back there and listen. And what I've been telling people, what I'll do is, what I'll commit to do, doing is actually listening. And what I hear, I'll weave that into the fabric of the BC Lobos if I become leader. Mm -hmm. If we're successful enough, where we actually become the, the, the governing party again, I'll weave that into the fabric of uh, government of BC. Was it an issue of leadership or was it systemic to the party that they stopped listening to some of these communities? Well, I, I think it was a, a, a bit of uh, the idea that uh, something I heard earlier on when I went into the legislature in 2017, I was always told the work we're doing here in the legislature is important. But remember, the rest of BC is out there. Mm -hmm. You've got to go back to your own writing. You've got to listen to people. And when you tour the province, you've got to go out there and listen to them. Don't get stuck and this idea that Victoria is the end all of everything that we're doing here in, in terms of governance of BC and politics of BC. Yeah. So I took that to heart. And, and you were telling leadership, you were telling the party before the 2020 election, these concerns? Well, I knew, I knew what I was doing back home just basically because the party, uh, specifically the caucus, mm -hmm. was telling me this is what I got to do. Right. And I heard the stories as well of how they got established in the first place. 
where where it was actually started out those church basements going to coffee shops talking to five or six people sure you know and just listening and so that's where i took my cue not only in 2017 when i went back to my own writing but everywhere i went i made a point of uh, listening but by the way i had understood the idea of listening to people long before i became an mla Mm-hmm. You know, I listen to my own community talking about poverty, unemployment, exclusion, uh, racism. So over the years, I listened to it all over, and I, I put together a plan in my head on how to address all this if I ever became chief counselor. Hmm. And I thought that was key uh, to what it means to be a leader. Right. Let's talk about some of those ideas. Let's talk about this idea of diversity, because there is a dialogue happening around diversity within the BC Liberal membership and some of the leadership candidates. As an Indigenous leader, you obviously understand racism, you understand exclusion, you understand the marginalization of communities, you understand having no opportunities in a community. Former BC Liberal MLA, Jazz Johal, a friend of mine, I'm sure a friend of yours as well, he said, and I want to get this quote correct, he said, quote, diversity is a tactical exercise for BC Liberals, and then he added, BC Liberals have used minorities as cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. Is he correct? Well, that's his opinion. Uh, but I just came in in 2017. And by the time I came in, diversity was already a question mark mm-hmm. for all parties, for that matter. And so, but what I've understood is when I went out to a place like Richmond and Surrey, for example, that's what they're telling me. They were saying, look, you, you got to walk diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and the only point I made was, look, I'm diversity as well, <laughs> right? I understand what you're talking about. Sure. In fact, a lot of the things we're talking about in terms of uh, the ethnic communities, I've lived it as well. So I totally understand what you're talking about. But I did make the commitment to say, look, there's ways to address this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will work to actually include diversity, not 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 as a as just a token gesture, yeah, but really to reflect the diversity that we're seeing in British Columbia, that's actually changing annually by 50,000 people coming into BC Mm -hmm. every year. So it sounds like you are hearing it from communities that, hey, you know, we're not seeing the real diversity in this party. That's right. That's right. And and by the way, the first couple of meetings I took out in these communities like Richmond and Surrey, those were rough meetings. (laughs) But when they realized that I was actually willing to actually go the extra mile to, to actually address this issue, they started inviting me back. Sure. And every time I went back, they'd bring in different groups of people to come and talk and listen and, and just have a dialogue about this. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really a politician. You know, the success I've experienced in the past, just be honest, just yeah. be truthful, and just do the best you can to address some of these problems. So I, I think that's why I'm getting called all over BC uh, from all different groups, uh, ethnic, uh, ethnic communities. They just see there's a, there's a difference between politics governance and leadership. Mm -hmm. One of the other conversations right now in the BC Liberal Party is who should be included to represent the party. There was the whole thing with Aaron Gunn's leadership bid, which you supported. But then even before that, there was this conversation about whether previous candidates like Lori Thronis or Margaret Kunst should be able to run for the party to represent the party while they express opinions that really turn off large swaths of the population. And so I'm curious about your take on, I don't want to brush it as social conservatism, because I think that's too broad of a brush, but on candidates like Lori Thronis, Margaret Kunst, who do express these views, do they have a place to represent the BC Liberals under your leadership if you were to win? Well, I'm inclusive. I've always been inclusive. 
uh, whether you're talking about opinions or ideologies. But I draw a line at where those opinions, including mine, mm-hmm. that, that, that might not be uh, totally correct, cannot make it into policy. It cannot. We're talking about governance here, mm-hmm. and we're talking about a wide range of diversity across BC. Governance is very specific for me. Everything that we're doing in, in Victoria or Ottawa for them, it's got to reflect all of Canada. It's got to reflect all the citizens. And if we're going to be a diverse uh, uh, country or province, we've got to respect the opinions. But by the way, uh, I do draw the line of tolerance and hate, and I know exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. and I'd, But the rest of it, we've got to get these uncomfortable conversations on the table. We've got to discuss them. But, you know, what's even more insidious to me is if there's opinions out there that actually border on tolerance and hate, but they're hidden. Hmm. And this is something I grew up with. Yeah. I'd much rather, if, hey, if you have uh, ideas about tolerance and hate, let's get it out in the open. Sure. So that, I've always, that's what was actually taught to me back in my community. Okay. No, no, fair enough. So, so you're saying that obviously those opinions won't, wouldn't make it into policy and you wouldn't want those opinions outwardly expressed if they were representing the party, if people were representing the party. Well, the thing about it is, as a leader, I know how influential my comments are. I know that. Mm-hmm. I've got a responsibility to keep that in check because governance is actually a specific task. So I'm very careful not to not bring my own personal opinions into this. I'm really thinking more about people's lives, sure. their future, their children's future. And... There's a lot of opinions out there that actually don't relate to that. Yeah. And I, I think for where BC's heading right now, I, I think somebody that's actually looking more to the future in terms of our financial stability, for example, uh, I think that's important. I think for the, the political division that we're actually seeing here across all different subjects, I think it's more important that we get a handle on all that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very conscious of how political leaders have influence in terms of what they see or do. Yeah, fair enough. I want to go back to how we started this chat, and I want to go back to that first leadership debate. Okay. Uh, win or lose this leadership race, you're still going to be the BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. That's right. Now, there was a lot of time spent in that debate asking Kevin Falcon, the presumed frontrunner, I'm not saying he is, but that's how people are categorizing him, asking Kevin Falcon, you know, are you going to run for the party if you lose your leadership bid? In fact, there were six questions one after the other asking the same thing. You had two of them. Yeah. You heard his answer. He kind of conceded, no, he's running for the leadership of the party, and, and that's about it, and he wants to be premier. Since clearly it was important to you, because you asked it twice, what did you make of his answer when he said that, no, he's not going to run for the party if he doesn't uh, win the leadership? Well, I was, I was disappointed. And uh, initially, that wasn't my question. But when I heard the answer, when it was first asked, I, I, had, to, I had to follow up. Uh, be, mainly uh, what I thought about, even in 2017, when we're talking about this type of uh, uh, an issue, we're talking about teamwork for, for a greater cause. We're talking about the direction of BC. So in any case, whether, regardless of what happens in this race, um, I'm part of Team Merrifield, if Renee wins. I'm part of Team Gavin Dew, if he wins. You know, I'll, I'll still put my name into the 2024 election, and, and I'll, I'll run again to help the team. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, my goal is actually getting BC to a better place. I'll do that as a leader. I'll do that as a team member, uh, because I'm really committed to, to people and communities. If Falcon wins, will you be able to get over your disappointment to be Team Falcon? 
Yeah. Okay. Disappointment? Well, not? you said you were disappointed in his answer. Oh, well, I'm disappointed so. in the answer to saying that uh, it's disappointing that he won't run as an MLA. Sure. That the only goal is to be leader. Yeah. My own, I've got a lot of goals. Team leader is, is one of them. But that's not the only goal. The, I think my ultimate goal is to be part of any team that gets BC to a better place. Mm-hmm. That's my goal. If I'm, if I'm part of the team, great. If I'm the leader, great. Either way, we've got to focus on what the overall goal is. Absolutely. So we are now entering the podcast exclusive part of the interview. Thanks for sticking around, Alice. I appreciate it. Not a problem. It. This is I, actually quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time for me, too. So this is all new, but but I really enjoyed it. I'm glad we, you could stick around for a little more. We can kind of let our hair down a little bit. Or whatever hair you Come have on. left. <laughs> Jeez. Azim didn't we? tell you what you're getting into? This is what we do. We take, we take uh, you know, light jabs, light jabs. <laughs> I do want to jump back into it. I know that was a, a bit of a break there, but... You recently tweeted that UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which you voted in favor of, you said that that is a farce and, quote, the biggest scam pulled on Aboriginals in the past 20 years. Can you explain what you mean to someone who is just unfamiliar with UNDRIP and and what what you're saying about this legislation or at least how it's being implemented? Well, you've got to go back uh, to the days when I was chief counselor, and I first came across this document. And when I looked at it, I thought it was, not only was it redundant in terms of what Canada already done, Hmm. a lot of it couldn't be accomplished. And so I actually, uh, to to my own counsel, I said, no, we shouldn't do anything about this. Let's not endorse it. Let's not support it. We got a good plan. Let's stick with it. Mm -hmm. And our plan was based on rice and title, uh, case law that was developed in the courts of Canada and BC, but all that flowed from Section 35 of the Constitution of Canada. I mean, how many countries around the world have Aboriginal rights and title recognized in their constitution? And so, you know, that's that's how we accomplished our success back in Kitimat. But it was combined with our corporate strategy, our political strategy. Uh, but it, but it always had a goal. So when I came into the legislature and. In 2017, I realized it was actually coming through again. There was two things I wanted to accomplish. Uh, Number one, I could see this a mile away that the NDP were going to use this as a wedge issue to kind of paint the liberals as a racist if we Mm, voted against it. Okay. I didn't want that. And number two, I basically wanted to see in action UNDRIP failing. But because you can't implement it, it's, it's going to take you decades and decades and decades to implement this. I, I, I just don't see how it's possible. So that's basically why I voted for it. But I still, I think this was just a basically a political exercise. And now it's been proven uh, in, in the legislature with every single bill that's been uh, actually passed in the House since 2017. Yeah. So the the layman's understanding of UNDRIP, and I, and please correct me because I'm not saying that I'm not trying to debate here. Yep. But it was, from my understanding, it's the idea that every policy, every legislation has to be put through an indigenous rights lens. Is that basically what UNDRIP is, or how like how would you describe it to someone? It's a mixed bag, really. But if you don't have the foundation of rights and title case law, you know, to actually grow from, then all this is is just a big political mess in terms of promises. Uh, let, let's say, for instance, uh, part, part of it is talking about 
uh, aligning every single law in BC with UNDRIP. And I questioned this in the legislature. So you tell me every law, uh, criminal law, uh, speed limits, shoplifting, how are you going to do that? And yeah. by the way, what is the assessment? What is the summary? Where's the report that's going to come out for everything you do is going to line with uh, UNDRIP? It doesn't make any sense. Whereas Aboriginal rights and title is pretty specific where it says, well, okay, if we know of any government decision that is going to affect specifically rights and title, mm -hmm. then we have to consult and accommodate. This one here is so vague and so general, so political. Uh, I just don't see how it's accomplished. On top of that, you know, the NDP government said that they would consult with uh, First Nations rights and title holders. Well, rights and title is held on behalf of the community. And we have 203 communities in BC. Right. They haven't consulted with any bands in the last four years. <laughs> They've actually gone to the advocacy groups like the Union of BC Indian Chiefs or Assembly of First Nations or the Leadership Council, all organizations that don't hold rights and title. So th the whole thing has been uh, based on a, on, a, on a political promise that can't be achieved. So is the idea that UNDRIP inherently just doesn't have the teeth or the specificity to really make an impact? Or is it more that you think this, this government, the BCNDP government, hasn't even tried to uphold the spirit of UNDRIP? Well, in either case, you can't do it. Okay. You, you've got to read the document to, to understand what I'm saying. And you've got to understand the Constitution of Canada. You've got to understand rights and title. I mean, the hundreds and hundreds of case law. Uh, that was established in the course of BC in Canada. Some of them were I mean, won by the First Nations, some were lost. But they defined uh, a, a path going forward for government, for First Nations, and third parties. Mm -hmm. It was working. From 2004 to 2017, it worked. That's how we got LNG. Mm -hmm. That's how we got Peace in the Woods. That's how we got mining projects across the board. And then the NDP just came in and just threw it all away. They disregarded the Constitution of Canada, they discarded all this case law. I mean, the last time I actually questioned the Attorney General about this, the last year in the legislature, you know, I was shocked that he actually said, well, maybe you can come over and, and help us out with some of this, the definition and the rollout of this. It, what do you mean? I debated the whole thing. I asked the same <laughs> questions when you guys were putting this in place. Like, these are the same questions. Yeah. Anyway, it's that, that, that's why I made that tweet and Quite frankly, I, I was warning the NDP the whole time, don't play politics with Aboriginal issues. So, you know, we're talking about the most disadvantaged people in Canada. Mm -hmm. And why throw out a good plan that was developed from 2000? And by the way, I helped develop a lot of those protocols in our region that that kind of laid out the groundwork for, for a relationship between the BC government and a band like mine. It worked. Yeah. Why did we throw it all away? And, you know, it, it just saddens me that we had a plan in place to address poverty, suicides, children going to government care, people going to, into prison. We had a plan and it was working. And now we're kind of stuck in this political limbo now with this UNDRIP bill, which is, that's what saddens me the most. Mm -hmm. And I know this is kind of a, a broad and, and big question, but when we think about things like reconciliation and the relationship between the BC government and First Nations in BC, what are some big steps that the province can take? Well, you could go back to the plan that was uh, painfully put in place 
from 2004 to 2017, those were not easy days because nobody really understood the path forward. The case law developed principles that you could interpret, but it defined, say, uh, the duty of the Crown, for example. It defined the responsibility of the First Nations. And it actually defined the, the, the role of a third party. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of time to work it out. We should actually go back to that as a foundation and actually build on it because it brought up not only success for First Nations, you, you come to Kitimat and you'll see the town of Kitimat is booming. Mm -hmm. Terrace, neighboring community, non-Indigenous is booming. Every, every community uh, from Prince George to Kitimat you know, they're seeing some level of success in terms of the, the construction. Mm -hmm. And th this has a trickle effect in terms of retail. You know, th there's sure. a lot of trickle effects. So th there was a way that BC was resolving two things. You were strengthening your economy and you were fixing one of the, what was referred to in the past as Canada shame, meaning the indigenous populations living in 70 to 80% poverty. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, that, that's why I'm so, so sad and angered about why did we just throw that away with no thought in terms of what it does not only to First Nation communities, what does it do to the society of BC in general? Because we were on a good path. Yeah. Your campaign and, and lived experience really speaks to rural communities. It speaks to communities that, that want to focus on resource extraction opportunities and economic development as a way to create better outcomes. But the BC Liberal Party needs to make some serious gains in Metro Vancouver if it wants to form government. That's where it's lacking seats. Four of the six candidates in the race are from Metro Vancouver. So aside from looking at economic development in these regions, what are you proposing to meet the evolving needs of urban and suburban British Columbians? Well... My experience actually covers a long, a, a wide range of, of, of uh, uh, knowledge that I picked up over the last 17 years. And when I go out to these communities, uh, say I go to Port Coquille, for example, and they're talking about the idea that saying, well, look, I want a, our people to go from their doorstep to their place of employment within 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be driving an hour and a half from Port Coquitlam to North Shore for a good paying job. Yeah. So when they're talking about that, it's like, uh, okay, we want to develop this train yard right inside Port Coquitlam. And what I say was, hey, that's right inside my wheelhouse. Yeah. I've been doing that for 17 years. I've been <laughs> reviewing proposals. I've been helping them through environmental assessments. I've looked at many, many business plans over the last 17 I can help you. I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And it, you, you go out to a different place. For example, Delta. Everybody talks about value-added. Everybody talks about uh, manufacturing. Sure. Yet in Delta... They're getting squeezed out by high property values. Yeah, they're trying to find a way to get government to actually assist them to say we want to manufacture here. Mm -hmm. But if things don't change, we got to go to Alberta. Yeah, we got to go to the United States. Hey, that's what I've been doing. I've been lobbying government for the better part of seventeen years to make BC more conducive to investment. And when investment leaves, like like what we're seeing right now, or or it doesn't even come in the first place then you can have problems, especially mm -hmm. with rising taxes. And this is what I've been doing for the better part of 17 years, trying to encourage investment for the sakes of communities as well as people. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question that might upset you. 
Oh, so <laughs> and I know you're a boxer, so take it easy on me. I don't, don't, like 25 don't, years. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> so earlier this year, Ravi Kalon, BCNDP cabinet minister, was on the podcast, <laughs> and he had this offhand comment. We were talking about the BC Liberal leadership race. We were looking at prospective candidates, mostly about Kevin Falcon, but your name did come up. He did praise you. He said that he highly respects your lived experience and he respects you as a leader. But then he said that you do not believe in climate change. And I said, is that true? And he said, I don't want to put words in Ellis's mouth. You have to ask him. So now, full circle, I'm asking you, is this true? You don't believe in climate change? No, it's not. And I, 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 I don't know where this came from. I mean, the NDP are really grasping at straws if they're going to accuse me, me, of all people, of that. I mean, you think about when I came into the council in 2003. The first thing I did was actually say, oh, I'm going to pick up the mantle from where my ancestors left off. I'm here to repair the environment. I'm here to fix the Kitimat River. I'm here to fix air quality. I'm here to fix land impacts. Mm -hmm. So I actually reviewed all those files over the last, since what, the early 70s from uh, pulp and paper mills from people diking the, the Kitimat River, from unchecked forestry practices, from the smelter, the aluminum smelter. I just picked up where they left off. Yeah. Mind you, I had better tools at my disposal than my ancestors did. In fact, the only reason I changed it was because uh, my, one of my counselors said, you really should think about the social issues you're facing before you make a decision on resource development. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the social issues we were facing, because I, I thought I was the only guy suffering from unemployment, Yeah poverty then i find out first nations all across canada are doing it so i, I made a, a two conditions to my bank council i will support resource development but under the conditions it's got to be done with the highest environmental standards possible check we did that under the canadian environmental assessment and bc environmental assessment the other condition i said it's got to deliver prosperity to mm -hmm. the people who truly need it check we did that too so this idea of I mean, everybody talks about this uh, uh, climate change, and that's all they do. They talk. Sure. Right? They don't do anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a doer. I'm a man of action. And by the way, uh, for the NDP, in response to that uh, Riley Callum uh, uh, comment, in terms of doing versus talking, why did the NDP propose the climate action plan last year that was only 60% complete? Hmm. Where's the other 40%? <laughs> And this that's is what I question. asked. That's what I asked in, in estimates. <laughs> and yet everybody's praising this climate action plan. And what I was asking for was, where's the results? Yeah. And so. And that's a frustration I've had with, with with a lot of talk around climate change action is that, you know, setting targets and setting goals is great. But then on different levels of government, when you look at what they deliver, you know, is it really making a difference? Is it just kind of greenwashing? I'm very critical of that, maybe from a, a, a different side than you are, but I agree. Like, I, it frustrates me to no end. And I'm certainly no environmental activist, but I just find that, you know, people make such a big deal out of a lot of these announcements. And then when you key into it, it's like, well, is yeah. anything actually being done? No, not really. And in fact, uh, I wouldn't say I'm an environmental activist myself, but I do care about uh, the environment. Sure. In fact, if, and uh, I'm not either, to be clear. I'm right? saying I'm not an environmental activist. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay. But, you know, one, one of the ideas that came to us back in 2004 was saying it's good that we're trying to address uh, Asia's emissions yeah. by giving them a cleaner fuel source. 
but why are we not looking at all the communities in BC that burn diesel fuel mm. for electricity? Yeah. And I loved that idea. And I thought, you know what, BC, that's what we should be doing. We should actually be uh, producing clean LNG for export, but we actually should be transitioning all of these generators in BC, transition to LNG until we can come up with a cleaner source. Yeah. I loved that idea. And in fact, it went even further. Where I was talking about, I went to Beijing. And in Beijing, what they had, they, they had the regular gas station, but they had fuel, diesel, natural gas. Oh, interesting. And it okay. was normal. Wow. And I often wondered, why did, I actually had a natural gas truck back in the late 80s. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And I didn't see a difference between the, the, the power, because I, I, I just used it to get my family around. Mm -hmm. But I, I found it very convenient, but I thought, why didn't we not build in that? I mean, tankers all around the world are now converting from bunker fuel to natural gas mm -hmm. to reduce their emissions. Yeah. So BC, you talk a great game, but uh, if you really want to reduce the emissions, by the way, I was quite shocked when the leader of the Green Party, Andrew Weaver, was fighting LNG, you know, tooth and nail, <laughs> while he's leader of the BC Greens. And then recently, he just said, we can't meet that one point. Yeah, I thought that was target. very strange. <laughs> What happened? <laughs> I think there's a few people from a few different camps that have uh, some issues with uh, what he said and what he did in, yeah. in office. But I, I want to go back to this Ravi Kalon thing and, and not specifically about him, but more curious about how people perceive you and maybe some expectations they have of you. And then when they meet you, you know, they, they think differently. Are you seeing that on the campaign trail where they have some preconceptions of, of who you are and then... Because you, you were saying that in some communities, it, it was tough get, to get going, yeah. but you kept getting invited back. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like what, what was the resistance in some of those communities? Uh, before we get to that, let's correct another thing that Ravi sure. Kailan might be uh, uh, saying out in public about me. He went to Terrace Airport, and we competed in a luggage-throwing contest. Is that right? I won. He didn't win. Oh, I would have bet on you. I hit the, I hit the, I hit the, <laughs> the container. I nailed it. He missed. So, Ravi, <laughs> you I know, corrected this online, Ravi. You know, no, no disrespect to Minister Kalon, but if you asked me to bet in that competition, I would have bet on you for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> in, in terms of uh, what I've been doing in the leadership race. Uh, the resistance, like the, you were the saying. The resistance. Uh, I went out there and uh, places like Surrey, Richmond, Maple Ridge, and Oxford, and I heard this, the, the criticisms that call me back saying, you know, well, you guys didn't really listen to us, and uh, mm. right. So it's more about the party, yeah, as opposed more to you about personally. The party. But I, I didn't tell them. I say, well, hey, I'm new here. I'm 2017. I'm new guy. I don't know anything about that. I didn't say that. I said, look, I'm sorry. I yeah. apologize, but I commit. You know, I'll come back. I'm not. I'm not coming back for your votes. I'm not coming mm -hmm. back for money. I'm just coming back to listen. I will commit to you. So. I came back a couple more times, and after that, uh, the community started to warm up to me. Yeah. After that, they started inviting me back. <laughs> and it was uh, every time they, uh, we went I heard back, you picked was, up some dance moves. Oh, Jed, that was horrible. <laughs> I was born without rhythm. <laughs> but, but every time they invited me back, they, they invite more people, different people. And so yeah. this, is what, uh, this is what I'm finding all across BC. And all I ask is, you know, just, just hear me out. Yeah. Just hear me out. And it. If you like me, great, support me. If you don't, you know, that's really up to you. But, but I'm not going to pander for your vote. I, I haven't changed my narrative in the last 17 years. Mm -hmm. 
I, I believe so strongly in people. I believe so strongly in BC. I believe strongly in our communities. It, it was something I was taught to be in my village, you know, to, to always kind of represent the community mm-hmm. and always help the community. I just took it to a, another level in terms of everywhere I'm going. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, and, and honestly, I respect it. If it was me, I, I would have said, "Oh, those BC liberals—that—that's Kevin Falcon's BC liberals. That, those aren't—that's—that's that's not my team." I'm joking. I'm, I, I'm baiting you a little without, bit. I, without a doubt, but uh, at the end of the day, I joined the BC liberals for for a reason. Sure. I actually appreciate the values, and I, I do take responsibility for that because, in in terms of the BC liberals' future. So I do take responsibility for that as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Let, let's talk about the BC NDP for a second. Premier Horgan, the BC NDP, they have been quite popular. Obviously, they did very well in the 2020 election. But even in polling, you know, they, they seem to be quite popular in the province. Where exactly do you think they've failed British Columbians? If you had to list a top three of what they're doing completely wrong. Well, number one. The information on COVID, I mean, I can understand why people are mad and angry because take, for instance, uh, the curve. We talked about the curve. Yeah. And when this first came out, nobody really understood what was really going on. But the idea was flatten the curve. Mm-hmm. And everybody stayed home, did what they did, uh, told, uh, they put on masks, no family gatherings, did everything. And then the NDP had a snap election. Hmm. And the curve went up. Yeah. That, that was a mixed signal. Yeah. And then now, now we're talking about other things that are angering people. Like, I can't stand to see small businesses shutting down all across BC. The small mom and pop businesses, uh, the tourism businesses, and uh, the restaurants are taking the, the biggest hit of all. And uh, what I don't get, okay, I've got to wear a mask. I agree from the door of a restaurant to a table, for example. I gotta show my passport. Yeah. But I just, I've been riding the transit down here in Vancouver for the last couple of months. In that same equation, I'm getting on the 99 bus line on Broadway and it's jam packed. Yeah. You can't get any more people on that. <laughs> I got a guy standing right next to me, breathing over my shoulder into my mask. <laughs> There's no social distancing. Yeah. So I, I can understand this is the kind of complaints I'm getting all across BC where, they, where they're saying these rules don't make sense. I didn't make the rules. Yeah. I was not in the room when these rules were made. Is that more of a communication issue then that they haven't fully explained the, the logic to British Columbians or do you think that the rules themselves are problematic? I, I, I think it's an it's, it's a issue of transparency and accountability. Hmm. Where did this rule come from? Where's the science behind this rule? Where, where are the facts behind this rule? Because the, the people are asking me about this is like, I, I can't justify this. I can't. If I was in the room and I was talking to experts and, I, and we all formed an opinion on what should be done, not just regionally and provincially, mm-hmm. but globally, we've we got to think about this global context. Then I could under, understand the rationale for this, but quite frankly, I... I wasn't in that room. I don't have the facts and sciences that uh, this NDP government could have developed those rules from, mm-hmm. or those regulations. And I, and I won't justify and interpret anybody else's decision unless I know the science and facts behind it. Sure. Do you support the vaccine passport? The vaccine passport? Yeah. Uh, I support vaccines. Um, I'm double vaccinated. 
uh, my wife uh, is getting the booster. Yeah. Uh, only be, and I've always uh, supported uh, the flu shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly because I, I've got members of my family that are have weak immune systems. And so, talking about her grandmother, for example, I'm talking about two of my brothers. So I've always considered, yes, I don't want to, I don't want to get COVID. And if I get COVID, I don't want to spread it. Sure. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, you know what? I, I want to get back to normal. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm getting all the complaints from both sides. And the one thing I've said, and I understand this debate that's going on. It's getting quite heated. It's getting quite ugly. And what I'd like to say to both sides on top of this uh, vaccine mandate, I've been in many, many issues where I've been brought in to mediate. And, and the one thing I will say, you're never going to win an argument by calling the other party stupid. Or sure. Yeah. I've never changed my mind and no, geez, just because somebody called me an idiot. Yeah. I mean, us as leaders, us as adults, we, we've got to be mature about this. We've got to be rational. And I think overall we haven't given uh, British Columbia's options. We haven't thought about technology. We haven't thought about treatment. Uh, we haven't thought about ventilation systems specifically designed for allergens, particles, COVID, viruses. We haven't considered this. So I, I understand the arguments going back and forth, but uh, I, I'm still a supporter of vaccine uh, vaccines. I'm mm-hmm. still a supporter. But the passports, the passports, having to show that QR code to get into a venue, to get into a restaurant, you, you seem know, a little more ambiguous on that. I, I think the people got to understand, like, okay, how effective are these measures? If cases keep going up, how effective are they? And this goes back to science and facts. And I don't think anybody really wants to talk about the assessments that have to be made on this. Can you really say the vaccine mandates worked? I mean, more people did get vaccinated, right? There was yeah. a spike in people getting vaccinated. That's right. And I, again, I'm not a scientist. Again, I'm not trying to debate this. I'm just yeah. saying, like, I feel comfortable being in a restaurant, sitting at my table with my mask off, knowing that everyone had to show that they were vaccinated. Yeah. There is a certain comfort in that and feels like we're kind of going back to normal. Well, I would have done it regardless uh, because... Hmm. Being double vaccinated actually gave me a, a level of comfort that, and saying, okay, we could go back to normal. But why I really did it was I just couldn't stand the idea of all these restaurants shutting down. Yeah. I couldn't do it. And so why I supported the vaccine passport was mainly because I wanted to go to restaurants. Yeah. And I wanted to support them. I wanted to give the waiters and waiters and the, and the owners, you know, revenues. I wanted to give the waiters and waitresses some tips. I wanted to... I want to support them. Mm-hmm. In fact, when this first started, nobody really remembers when this first started, there was such a backlash against Asians. Not yeah. only because they were accused of, of rising house prices in Vancouver, but also, you know, the Asians on the street were somehow responsible for COVID. So members of my caucus went out to Victoria to, a, to an Asian restaurant just to show support. And we took a picture outside. Hey, no racism, no COVID, no COVID racism. And I think this is, when we start to talk about these types of topics here, it becomes very polarizing, mm-hmm. very divisive. And it always go back, it, it should go back to how the government's actually making decisions in the first place. Yeah. Be accountable and transparent about the science and facts that went into this decision. Uh, the passport, I'll continue to use it as long as I can keep supporting small business. Fair enough. I'm going to bring him up uh, probably the last time, but I, I do want to bring this up. When 
when Kevin Falcon announced that he was running, the very first thing that he said was that he wanted to get rid of the BC speculation and vacancy tax, which I thought was actually quite interesting because arguably this is the most popular tax that BC has ever had. What's your stance on the spec and, and vacancy tax in BC? Would you want to keep it? Would, would you want to change it? Would you uh, want to get rid of it altogether? Well, I, I've been all around all these places, Vancouver, Langford, and, and everybody's trying to address this in terms of the housing affordability question. And everything I've read so far kind of points to the fact that we haven't looked at all the factors mm -hmm. that go into housing affordability. Sure. We haven't looked at all of that. But to say that, say, the speculation tax or the vacancy tax is somehow going to cure this, no, that's been proven wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you look at all these different theories. It's not a in. silver bullet. It's I not agree. a silver bullet. Yeah. And so I, I thought really, okay, this actually fed into the populism of, of, a, of an issue, along with the idea that that report that came out that actually identified uh, Asians with Asian names, you know, they were responsible for That was so wrong. And I, I think British Columbia's got to understand that uh, when, when you look at these kind of issues, the politicians, they're looking for your vote. They're looking for your support. I mean, to take a realistic look at this, you've got to look at all the facts that go into this. Mm -hmm. And really, this is happening all around the world. And BC, no matter what you think about, though those people are coming to BC, the first thing they look for, 50,000 people annually, the first thing they're looking for, housing <laughs> yes. when they come here. <laughs> yeah. And it's spilling sure. over into the suburbs. So the different <clears throat> municipalities are dealing with different ways. I actually like Langford's approach. I like Burnaby's approach. Um, they, but they've been dealing with it quite a long time. But at the end of the day, you're dealing with density. Yeah. But to think that a, that a politician has got that one magical cure with some kind of tax, that hasn't worked in the last 10 years. Sure. And understanding that uh, such a complex problem like housing and the price of housing and the price of renting, you know, probably requires a, a basket of solutions as opposed to just one thing. When, when you look at the BC spec and vacancy tax, you know, does that stay under your premiership if that were to happen well that's definitely going to need a review right but to be clear I, I don't like vacant houses i don't like that but also on top of that i don't like the idea of a young person not being able to afford a house mm -hmm. but it, it goes back to the question of okay what are all the factors going to this sure and the one thing i've noticed and this is what i was pointing out to me uh, last year it was uh, okay you look at the rising cost of houses you look at inflation you look at cost of living everything's going up yeah but wages haven't. Yeah. Oh, that's actually quite interesting. And so I'm starting to read more more reports on this and starting to understand it more and just say, okay, we've got to find a way to, to bring up those wages. And so it's, it's, there's a whole mixed bag of things we could be doing. But just to say that uh, the vacancy tax or the speculation tax, we get rid of it, is it going to work? If we keep it, is it going to work? No, I, I think as a responsible leadership, we got to look at everything, mm -hmm. and we got to come up with a, a comprehensive solution. That's not just one ofs. Sure. Just as we wrap up here, I, I really want to give you the opportunity to pitch yourself to the listener who has got to this point. <laughs> Sum it up for me. Why are you running? I mean, this is an arduous task ahead of you. You are crisscrossing all over the province. We are still very much in a pandemic. Uh, we obviously have these unfortunate natural disasters as well. You know, this is a lot of work. You're putting in a lot of time. What is motivating you? Why, why are you doing this? Well, 
I, I came from a pretty tough background. Uh, born, raised in reserve. Still live there today. And uh, I was actually raised under a narrative, uh, almost like a victim narrative, that somehow somebody else was to blame for this. Um, government. Uh, the white man. The colonialist. As what people like to say, which I don't like saying. I don't like talking about settlers in that way. But when I got into council in 2003, it took me about a year to realize that narrative was wrong. And if anything, uh, it was within our ability to actually address our own issues if we just opened up to what was around us, meaning the economy, society. And so the more I th thought about it, the more I realized you know what, I enjoy BC just like everybody else. I enjoy the highways, the hospitals, the schools. But at the end of the day, when I, when I started to venture out of my village, I started to realize there's a lot of people that are in my, my shoes. It doesn't matter if you're indigenous or not. And after we got LNG up and running and the, the aluminum smelter running, strangers would stop me outside uh, Tim Hortons, for example. Caucasians. And they'd put down their coffee and hug me. <laughs> uh, great, who are you? Have I, ever met, have I ever met you before? No, but I got a job and I bought a house. And so I, I started to, you know, I, I really liked helping people yeah. uh, previous to being a politician. And when I got into uh, uh, politics and governance, I started to realize I could help people on a massive scale. And so this is why I'm doing this because I, I don't like the idea of uh, continuously raising taxes. I don't mm. like the idea of stifling the economy. Because every First Nation leader will tell you what it's like to live in reserve with no economy. Yeah. It's horrible. And living under the thumb of government, because government is actually providing you funding on an annual, annual basis, that's a, that's a form of control. Hmm. I don't like that. I think government has a specific role, and at the end of the day, I want people to have the freedom and the liberty just to pursue their future and have good lives. That's, that's really all I want. Hmm. And I, I can see it. I. I've done this before. I've actually had visions of where we could get our community to a better place, ask people to trust me, follow me, and we could achieve it, which I did. I'm just taking that same brand, I'm taking that same narrative, I'm taking that same vision to the rest of BC and saying, look, there's a better future for us. Yeah. Right? Just hear me out. I know this isn't a luggage-throwing competition, <laughs> but I still have my, my, my bet on you. I think you're going to win this thing. What happens if you don't win, though? I, I mean, I know you're going to continue to be the MLA of, of Skeena. Um, are you going to bring in that grassroots energy back to the, the party? Is that still your goal if you're not the leader? Or will you just, at that point, sort of take direction from whoever wins the leadership? Well, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. Um, but that's really up to the, the people that support me on this. Mm -hmm. It's really up to them to make a decision. Uh, but, but for me, it's like, I still think the BC Liberals want to build uh, a better future. And I think now we've learned our lesson now through this leadership race in terms of what we've done wrong. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we've got to fix it, regardless of who is leader. I've already committed to it, and I'm already doing it right now. I'm actually going over to all these different communities because they're asking me to come back. I've been to Cranbrook twice. I've been to Fort St. John three times. That's really hard for a rural guy. Yeah. I've been to Richmond, Surrey, Maple Ridge. I've been to all these communities. And it's hard enough to get out there in the first place because, you know, it, it costs money. It takes yeah, time. Yeah, of course. So to go out there two or three times at, the, at their request is, is showing me that uh, they're, 
they believe in me. They believe in what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So what will I do if I don't win the leadership race? I'm still part of the team. I still want to get BC to a better place. Uh, and I still want to build up communities. I want to help where I can for communities that need that help. Um, but uh, but let's remember, don't win the leadership race. I have a huge responsibility to Skeena. Absolutely. Right? That's yeah. that's where I'm from. I'm the MLA for Skeena. That's always been a priority for me. But I'll, but I'll help where I can if I'm needed across BC. Are you visiting North Van at all? I just got back from there this morning. Oh. Yeah. Well, we're meeting today anyways, but let me know next time you're in North Van because that's okay. where I live. So I'll, I'll be happy to to be a fly on the wall and, <laughs> all right. and, and see you there. Sure. Absolutely. That'd no. be great. When you win the leadership, when you win the premiership as your goals, you're coming back on the show, right? All right, we'll make that commitment right now. I, I, I promise you, I'll make that commitment right now. <laughs> Ellis, this was a real pleasure. This was a monumental moment for the podcast. Now, iterated on Check and Check Plus. So it means a lot to me that you took time out of your schedule to meet with me. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And congratulations again on your first episode. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Folks. That's our show. This is Van Culler back in the saddle, shaking up the dialogue in BC politics with our guest today. He is the BC MLA for Skeena, and he is running to be the leader of the BC Liberal Party. He is Ellis Ross, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Yeah.